Hey, Susanna. Hey, Tavi. How are you? I'm all right. How are you? Yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm, I'm actually kind of excited. Excited about what? Oh, like hot off the presses. Like literally, I think the news reports are just starting to come out at time of recording like five minutes ago, 10 minutes ago. The House of Reps in the U.S. has passed the Build Back Better bill. And that is what? what? Yeah, yeah, it's really exciting. We're halfway there. We're halfway to uh, President Biden's very ambitious uh, sort of addendum to the infrastructure bill passing. It goes to the Senate next week. But the House has passed Build Back Better. This is the huge, you know, trillion plus dollar plan that has so many provisions and so many um, programs that are aimed squarely at mitigating climate change. So I'm like, I'm, I've got my like fingers crossed. I am cautiously and eternally optimistic. We can, we can do this. And I think next week or the week after it's going to go to the Senate for a vote. So I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to start this episode with some cautious optimism. How about that? Is that all right? (laughs) I'm so glad that you're still working on the horn section for our podcast. That's, that's really nice. I'm, I'm glad. (laughs) It's a good horn section to me. It is. And I'm, I'm actually, you know, honestly, I'm looking for any reason for cautious optimism or whatever. Uh, and I'm so glad to yeah. see it happening because, uh, you know, we've been we've been tracking some other news. A few weeks ago, uh, we did a mini episode on uh, COP26 while you were sick and your voice was still recovering. So, yeah, you know, COP26 ended. The sort of theme of this episode will be a recap of what happened. Yeah. And the recap in a soundboard moment is wah, wah. <laughs> that's a fair. <laughs> that's a fair story. I like that. Um, yeah. So, and for folks who are just tuning in, you know, over the past couple of weeks, delegates and lobbyists from around the world met to update each other on their progress towards the goals set out by the Paris Climate Agreement, and to adopt new and more ambitious goals that are desperately needed to mitigate the worst impacts of climate change in this decade. Yeah, and you'll remember a few weeks ago, Tivi did the episode that was just a quick primer to COP26. He laid out a couple of the themes that we would watch for as a bellwether of the overall success of the conference. So today's episode, we're going to check back in on those areas of focus and try to determine, was COP26 a big step forward in the fight against climate change or... Was it all one big cop out? Oh, no, you de- that's that's usually my job. Sick burn. So mom jokes for this episode. <laughs> Let's get into it. Cool. So before we dig into the sort of she said, he said, of commitments and rhetoric, I think it's important to center on the tangible why of this entire conference. Why are we doing this? Why is it so critical that the leaders of the world come together on a regular basis to hold each other accountable towards their progress on fighting climate change? I'm actually just going to provide a quote from one of the many stirring speeches that were given by leaders or delegates from some of the smaller nations that are actually suffering the worst impacts of climate change. So Aminath Shana, uh, who's the environment minister of the Maldives, is a small set of islands in the Pacific. This is her quote, quote, please do us the courtesy to acknowledge that it does not bring hope to our hearts, but serves as yet another conversation where we put our homes on the line, while those who have had 
other options to decide how quickly they want to act to save those who don't. We have 98 months to have global emissions. The difference between 1.5 and 2 degrees is a death sentence for us, unquote. Ooh, stakes is high. I love how she pulled the entire existential crisis of climate change right back down to earth by framing it in months. It's not years, it's months. It's so tangible and accessible. And it really is. I mean, it's, a, it's so stark, right? It's just a stark call to action. And, totally. you know, as a first time parent, maybe you feel this too. I don't know, but I can mm-hmm. feel both the expansive potential of a month but then also at the same time, just the fleeting speed at which months fly by. Oh, like, I feel you know, you when you're a parent, it's yes. like, it's, you're standing still, but you blink and they're 18. <laughs> oh my gosh, totally. Yeah, a month is like infinite and done already. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I mean, 98 months, it's urgent, it's calculable, it's real. I, I, I just, yeah, I love the way that she framed that. Totally. Um, so, I mean, to prevent that death sentence, you and scientists have already laid out that we need an accountable and actionable plan to reduce carbon emissions at roughly 8% uh, 8% per year Mm -hmm. this decade. Mm -hmm. So if the world is to warm no more than the 1.5 degrees Celsius, a target agreed to at the talk six years ago, that's what we have to do 8% per year this decade. And coal use must decline 78% this decade to align with that target. So, I mean, that's that's a huge decline. And newer reports have shown that new fossil fuel exploration needs to stop next year for success to be realized. So no more new fossil fuels, massive decline in coal. And I mean, 8% per year reduction in carbon emissions is no small task. Yeah. And keeping that, keeping those really tangible goals in mind, like to, to sort of like go off of the sort of the cue from the ambassador from the Maldives. It's like, make this real, make this tangible. And I want, I want our listeners to kind of hold on to that coal must coal use must decline 78% this decade, 78% this decade. That's like almost no coal left right by the end of the decade. That's a real target. Those are real projections based on real science. Right. And it's really critical to hold on to that because anyway, in our primer to COP26, we laid out the two main areas of focus that we were watching. First was the, we call the national contributions, or basically what concrete and actionable steps would each individual country commit to taking in order to meet the goals set out by the Paris Climate Agreement. And after that, we were hoping to see some real clarity and accountability in regards to uh, what's called the Global Climate Fund which charges the richest and usually biggest polluting nations to supply upwards of $100 billion per year to the developing nations that often bear the brunt of climate change, right? So first we're gonna dig in to the nation's, uh, sort of the national contributions. And then, uh, you know, there was some progress there where it came to coal and carbon credits, remembering that 78% decline in coal use. Okay, so in the literal final hours, in the final, final moments, there were a bunch of last minute tweaks and compromises to produce a new pact that acts as an addendum, basically, to everything else that's already been agreed to in the Paris Climate Agreement. And the new pact includes the first ever language around phasing down of coal and fossil fuel subsidies, yay. Yay. Within the context of just the UN talks, that language is actually a pretty big deal 
given that each country gets to vote on the agreement, that the entire world agreed to carry out escalating efforts to phase down unabated coal power and phase out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies in the language of the final agreement. I mean, it's it's a revelation, right? Okay. Like that's if we did that, that would be very exciting to get us to the 78% reduction in coal, right? Right. So you're you're saying that this is the first time in history that the UN has used such strong and direct language. And that was agreed to by every nation when it comes to phasing out coal power. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hang on, hang on. Because language matters and they actually did not agree to phase out coal power. Oh, but but you, ju- you just said that they were, um, they all agreed to, to. Yeah. Okay. Let me read the quote again. Okay. Because on the one hand, yes, this is like very exciting, but there's some nuance here. So okay. here's the quote again escalating efforts to phase down unabated coal power. They didn't say phase out. And that is a really big deal to some of the member states. Okay. There was this last minute drama as India, backed by China and other coal dependent developing nations, rejected a clause calling for the phase out of coal fired power. And after a huddle between the envoys from China, India, the US, and the European Union, the clause was hurriedly amended to ask countries to phase down Um, their coal use. So down, not out. (laughs) There's a down and out joke in there somewhere. There's gotta be. enough to make it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh gosh, okay. So India defended the softening of this language as a benefit to developing countries that Hmm. do not have the economic or technological infrastructure to rapidly switch from coal to renewables trying to position themselves as the voice of developing countries, despite being the sixth largest economy in the world. <laughs> okay. Not surprisingly, though, it was voices coming directly from even smaller island nations that called the simple word change from phase out to phase down as a major compromise and a huge disappointment. So let me get this right. In the end, this is simultaneously a huge win and a huge compromise for the language of sort of national commitments. While a phase down is definitely more vague, less actionable and seemingly less enforceable than a full phase out, it seems like the real miracle here is that there's global consensus that coal has to go. It'll still be up to every individual country to meet that vague, unfortunately, that vague commitment with demonstrable action. So it's now on the governments of the world to use this new pact to enforce the reduction of coal-fired energy production around the world. So if we return to the verbiage of the pact, there's also an agreement to actually fully phase out (laughs) fossil fuel subsidies, right? Wait, this is important. Is it phase down or phase out? Uh, uh, Hold on, phase out. Yes, thank you. Thank you for correcting, right? Escalating efforts to phase down unabated coal power and phase out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. That's good. So there's a long history of governments around the world subsidizing the production of energy from fossil fuels through tax breaks, abatements, and other fiscal or tax code strategies. Okay, okay. Basically making it as cheap as possible for extractive companies to produce dirty energy and as cheap as possible for consumers to power their homes and their lives 
with said fossil fuels. Right. And until today, coal and fossil fuel subsidies have never been explicitly mentioned in the 26 years, the COP 26 years of treaties and decisions at UN climate talks. Despite coal being one of the key drivers of global warming and 5.9 trillion of subsidies being given out annually to coal, oil, and gas. So, I mean, that sounds like pretty good news, right? Right? I mean, it does sound like good news, and I would love to get rid of $5.9 trillion of subsidies for coal. That would definitely make it way less attractive for coal plants and coal extraction to be happening, right, without that economic support. But, I mean, there's another shoe about to drop here, right? And also, like, inefficient. They're calling, like, phasing out inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. What does inefficient mean? Like, what does this language mean? Oh, and unfortunately, here again, the language was strong, but the commitments were not super clear or actionable. Basically, everyone agreed to phase out <laughs> subsidies and then agreed to update each other again in five years, like how they would get it done. So they're like, yeah, we're going to phase them out and we'll talk to you guys in five years once we figure out how to do that. Right. How many months <laughs> in five years? Right. Towards that 98 total. It's huge. And unfortunately, there was a lot. It's like kind of a lot of what uh, Greta Thunberg uh, uncharitably labeled as blah, 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 when she sort of kicked off the weeks of COP with a huge set of protests outside the doors, saying that basically everything that was happening in the halls of power at COP26 was just a bunch of rhetoric and garbage. And even on, like more unfortunately is when we turn to the second area of focus that we were watching for, um, which was sort of bringing some enforceability to the Global Climate Fund, it's really unfortunately starting to look like blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that was the yearly 100 billion collected from the richest nations in the world to go to the developing and at-risk countries to better adapt to climate change. So you're saying that's also looking like blah, blah, blah. There's no commitments in there. Unfortunately, COP26 has kind of failed those developing countries, uh, despite so like there were so many stirring arguments, uh, including an incredibly moving speech from Tuvalu's foreign minister. He delivered the speech literally standing in the ocean. Like he made the backdrop look like um, he was in an office with like a blue backdrop and, an, and a podium. And as he pulled out, you see that he's sitting essentially on a submerged sandbank. Like what used to be beachfront property is now literally two or three feet underwater. And his very nice suit is just like soaking in. Um, it seems like, unfortunately, rich nations stuck poor nations with a big bill. Look, wealthy countries responsible for the most pollution, right, have reneged on commitments to help developing nations adapt to a warming world. Remember, the goal is to get wealthy nations to fulfill the promise they agreed to 12 years ago to funnel 100 billion a year to climate action uh, in developing nations, and that hasn't happened. I think the most they've ever delivered in a single year has been around 80 billion. uh, And the final text of the Glasgow Agreements actually notes that there is a lack of commitment that, quote, literally, like, we are not making our commitment this year, quote, with deep regret, which, again, if language matters, that means they understand they're not going to be able to do it, and they send their, they send their regrets. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not, not cause for excitement and inspiration, is it? It's, uh, especially when you think, I mean, okay, so on one hand, we see the process happening here at home and how difficult it is. You know, even if our, our top people are in agreement about how we should be facing this, at least half the country 
is still debating about it all the time and at least half of our representation you know our decision makers in the halls of power are still fighting about it so even if some of us are agreed not all of us are agreed in our country that's happening in every other country how can they go to these big you know global summits like this and agree to things that they personally want to agree to and we know there they know there isn't the support for it back at home um so like on the one hand i appreciate they're being realistic and then on the other hand it's just like so unbelievably unjust and unfair i mean you just said like where rich nations are sticking poor nations with a big bill. Yes. And it's, it's, I mean, that's not even an apt metaphor because it's not something they can even pay. It's like a death sentence, right? Well it's like said. delivering coffins. Yes. Yeah. Or um, telling them to like scrap together their own coffins because we'll see them in five years. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, oof. Yeah. Rich countries have so far only shelled out about like you were saying, $80 billion a year in climate finance. And just a quarter of finance flows into efforts to adapt to climate change. Historically, most money has flowed into helping developing nations cut greenhouse gas emissions through campaigns like promoting energy efficiency. But with climate change already supercharging storms, wildfires, droughts, other disasters, there's a clear and immediate need for adaptation measures and technologies that are already being employed by richer countries. So technologies that could keep, for example, the Tuvalese ministers standing and delivering speeches on dry land. According to a United Nations report released earlier this month, the money will actually take to prepare developing nations for the consequences of climate change is between five to 10 times greater than the public finance that's currently available. And those costs are expected to balloon, right? They're not getting smaller. They're only going up. So the price tag for developing countries to adapt to climate change could reach $300 billion a year by the end of the decade. So if you thought, hey, $80 billion, that's a lot. Unfortunately, it's nowhere near enough. Yeah. And a couple steps ago in the conversation, you dropped a very important word into your opinion, which was justice, right? This feels unjust. This result... The bill, the coffin, whatever we're sticking these poorer nations with, this is ultimately one of the clearest indicators of global climate injustice. The largest, richest countries in the world have caused the most impact on our warming climate. And the smallest and most vulnerable countries don't have the GDP that could ever keep up with the economic demand of just continuing to exist. Shouldn't the richest and most polluting countries have a share of responsibility for the damages that they've caused? Damages that they've caused in direct proportion to the gains in wealth and political power? Like the very reason we sit in this seat of economic, military, sort of social influence and power as America has a relationship to how quickly we've been able to grow as a country, has a relationship to how we've powered our economy. I mean, isn't, isn't, global justice kind of the modus operandi of the United Nations? Like, isn't this supposed to be the place where we're trying to tip the scales of balance and justice back towards, you know, fairness, towards towards right? It kind of makes me wonder if there's going to be some kind of like legal, legal repercussions for this in a yeah. hundred years 
I mean, not even, we talked about this earlier in the season where the ICC, right, the International Criminal Court, which began its life as a part of the UN, as a function of the UN, and broke out into its own organ. They're considering justice litigation. Look, I'll say this personally. My mother is a chairwoman of a pretty big NGO at the United Nations. So she's working there every single day. And I got to tell you, she connected with me just this past week to let me know a lot of the people that she's talking to within the halls, within the like operational day-to-day of what it means to work at the UN or for an NGO of the UN, they're all disappointed. These decisions to soften, for example, the, the coal language and to not commit to the climate fund, these are decisions that happen after the buzzer, you know, with certain powerful countries extending the debate after the chamber recessed. That's why Sweden, even, like another rich, powerful country, even, they got up and were like, we're voting for this in spite of the fact that this is horrible, in spite of the fact this language was softened. There's people in the UN that are pissed about how this all went. No, I mean, they should be. I think it's, I don't know. I feel like I like try to always make the end of these like so inspiring. Like, let's <laughs> do it. But it's, I mean, it's really hard to read about what happened there and to stay optimistic because sure. we know what the problem is. We know what has to be done. Um, we know the time frame. we know the urgency, we know the consequences, we can clearly see who's going to feel the worst of these impacts first, and they are island nations, mm-hmm. and we're not doing enough to solve the problem. One could argue that the U.S. has everything it needs to take a strong stance, and in fact, to do everything we need to do to fix the problem for the U.S., but we didn't because of partisan bullshit and sure. because we've won power are still in the pocket of the fossil fuel industry and other countries, India and China and others, they're saying you have this system of capitalism and consumerism. You set up this system for the world and now we're all playing by it. Why would we sacrifice any of our growth in that system? You didn't, you know, it's, I don't know. It's very depressing. <laughs> sure. I think there's a way to locate hope in action. And I think domestically speaking, from from one American to another, from one fine, not so young capitalist to another, I think kind of ending where we started, we saw the House pass the Build Back Better plan, the addendum to the infrastructure bill. Next week or next month, sometime in the near future, it will be going to the Senate, a place where, you know, mansion and cinema sit. But really think about that. That infrastructure plan and especially Build Back Better is about a rapid transition to renewables, is about cleaning up our own act and putting our money and our time and our energy where our mouth is when it comes to Biden's stated goals of reducing our reliance on fossil fuel infrastructure and meeting the goals of the Paris Climate Agreement in the timeframe that was laid out. The action, even if it wasn't rhetorically fortified at COP26, I think the action has really come home for us Americans. And I I do think there might be a really viable chance for everyday citizens to stand up uh, and make their voices heard right now urgently. Because I do think, like, I don't believe in like trickle down, trickle up economics or anything like that. But if we are indeed one of the biggest polluters, if we are indeed one of the biggest capitalist powers in the world, then these types of changes at home should reverberate around the world. And that's maybe the only shred of hope that I can find uh, in this moment. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think, you know, as with anything, like take the beat, take your moment to be depressed, 
if this also makes you feel depressed as it, you know, was very disappointing for many of us, but then like you're saying, you know, get back to it. This is, this is the work of our time. It's the work of the people who are alive today. And we can't solve that problem if we just go, Oh, well, doesn't look so good anymore. Does it? And future's not so bright. Like, no, that means we just need to fight that much harder on changing it. And I've really been enjoying being on my climate smart committee in my town Because at least in New York state, there's a whole program laid out for towns to participate in to not only fight climate change, but also prepare, you know, to adapt to the changing weather. There's so much we can do on a local level. It just requires people to get involved. And of course, if you have the, the means and the ability to use renewable energy for your own home or business, like that's a change you can make right now that we that's uncommon could help you with. So there are changes that we can make and we just need to get inspired to do the ones that we can do. And as you're saying, get in touch with the people at the national level who hold the keys to the bigger solutions. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And honestly, I I really love that you brought it right back down to the local local because like it is all connected. Even if we don't believe in trickling or whatever, these measures that we take. And I want to thank you as one of your, as one of your constituents in the town of Claremont, like thank you for all the work that you do on the local climate smart committee, because it might feel small compared to like the global, but the global is local and vice versa. The changes that we make at home do reflect the changes that we want to see on larger and larger scales. So absolutely, you know, I'm proud of your work. I hope you continue to do it. And it's an inspiration because like you said, every day in every way, we can choose action or inaction. Riding kind of on that as well. Yeah. If you have, if you do, if your next step is, you know, going solar in New York's Hudson Valley, the capital region, or in Vermont, do look us up where it's uncommon.com and we will always be here to advise and serve you on your journey to power your own life and your own home with renewable energy. And honestly, we'll just be watching, build back better votes. We'll be applying pressure where we can. I got a couple of friends in Arizona who I got to call to make sure that they keep the pressure up locally. I have a bunch of people that I know in Virginia as well. But honestly, Suzanne, it's always so wonderful connecting with you to talk through these issues. As bleak as language might be, the the arc curves towards goodness and light. So hopefully this will be the decade that we achieve it. Yes. Yes. We've got uh, eight years. Eight years. 98 months, which I love. It's so tangible. 98 months. Let's do it. Thank you so much, Susanna. Thanks, Debbie. Cheers to you, listener. Catch you next time.